0: Child-Centered Therapy Sessions. We're breaking it all down today on Episode 91 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. I have a great discussion with Dr. Ariana Botain. We are talking all about naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions, and we talk about play-based therapy. And using the science of applied behavior analysis within that type of framework. We also round out our conversation on how she trains her staff at KGH in using this framework. And we also talk about their really dynamic interdisciplinary meetings that they have and how they really take collaboration very seriously. And not just from a theoretical standpoint, we talk about what they are doing on a weekly, monthly and quarterly basis to make that happen. And it's really, really great information. So let's dig right in to this episode. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready to use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist
1: and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next
0: therapy session. Thanks so much for joining us on Episode 91. We have a great episode today. Today, we have with us Dr. Ariana Botain. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. And I feel like we got acquainted this past summer. I did a talk for KGH about SLP services in the ABA setting, which was very, very fun. And I can't remember if that was the first time I think we touched base. Maybe you found out about my podcast or how did you find out about our work here at ABA Speech?
1: Yeah, we actually um, have been listening for quite a while, many of the staff here at KGH, We are a multidisciplinary clinic, so we offer ABA, speech, OT, and mental health services. And some of our SLPs brought to our attention your awesome podcast. So
0: many of us have been listening for quite a while and enjoying and learning a lot. I love that. Thanks for that. That's great (laughs) to know. I know I'm, I'm getting close to episode 100. I've already planned it and I'm like, oh my goodness, how can that even be? So... It's exciting, exciting times. Um, So for those of us that are new to you and your work, can you tell us just a little bit about you, your current position, kind of how you got into the field and all that great stuff?
1: Sure. So I am a BCBAD and I am currently working as the Vice President of Clinical Services at KGH Autism Services. We have two locations, one in Deerfield, Illinois, and then one in Madison, Wisconsin, And like I mentioned, we are a comprehensive, multidisciplinary clinic that specializes in treating young children with autism and their families. And as far as how I got into the field of behavior analysis, I feel like my journey is similar to many in that I was a psychology and theater major at the University of Minnesota. So maybe not the theater part is coming. Oh, I but, like that. Um, okay, I was fun. A, <laughs> I was a psychology major and I, you know, took an introduction to learning course as part of that program and just loved it and was hooked and went on to take an ABA and in autism internship course that was actually taught by Dr. Eric Larson from the Lovas Institute Midwest that involved being able to shadow an ABA therapist working with a young child with autism. And I absolutely loved every minute of it. So after I graduated, I went on to work for the Lovas Institute okay. and as an ABA therapist for three years. Um, in the field doing doing the work. <laughs> then I decided to go to graduate school and was fortunate enough to go to the University of Kansas and work with uh, Dr. Jim Sherman and Jan Sheldon. Um, had an amazing time, learned so much, obtained my master's and my PhD there. Hmm. And while I was in graduate school, I became really, really interested in skill acquisition research and parent training. So I went on to do my doctoral research on telehealth parent
0: training. Oh, yeah. Interesting. That's so, and that was before COVID, right? I mean, yes, I I would say it was
1: five years before its time. Whoa, (laughs) look at
0: you, Trailblazer. Oh my goodness. That is really fascinating. And I'm sure that really came in handy once COVID hit and you were. Trying to support parents because it was just like, I was just talking about that with my husband because we have three kids and he's in medical device sales. So he couldn't get into the hospitals, but I was on the computer every day, all day, and he was having to be teacher. (laughs) And it was like, it was very difficult for him. And we were just reminiscing about how kind of funny that was for him to have to try to, to, to work with our kids and to be their best teacher. But it was, I mean, parents were struggling during that time. So I'm sure that was a really nice skill set to be able to use at your current. It was
1: awesome because I'd been wanting to do telehealth even when I started at KGH and really wasn't able to, and I got the green light with COVID. I said, awesome, let's do this.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Very cool. So how long have you been at KGH then in, in that role?
1: So I have been here for about eight years. And, you know, coming here and KGH specializing in treating, you know, basically birth through five Mm -hmm. services, I, you know, really began looking more into best practice, early intervention models and developmental science and norms. And that's kind of how I found NDBI.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. We've touched about it just a little bit in one other episode. So for those of our listeners tuning in, can you give us a working definition of what NDBI is exactly?
1: Yes. So it's definitely a mouthful. It stands for Naturalistic Developmental Behavioral Intervention. And it's a mouthful, but it really does describe exactly what it is. But It's basically an empirically supported approach to treating young children with autism that involves learning through play. And it really represents the merge of ABA and developmental science.
0: That's great, because I think that so often people are not really analyzing their approaches, maybe using a one size fits all for younger students and middle school high school students or school age students so i think it's great that you guys specialize in just the birth to 5 because there's so many things that are important just at that age and i'm sure like the intensity like you said it's play based all those different types of things and i, I didn't know you worked at the lovas institute that's really interesting so that probably working with younger students you probably are learning different ways that you can use the science with that age group that's really fascinating so why should we think about or want to learn more about um, using NDBI to treat uh, our autistic learners?
1: Yeah. So really, recently, the field of autism has changed substantially, even from when I started at KGH, and that really younger and younger children are being diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And research by Karen Pearson colleagues actually suggests that an autism diagnosis becomes stable starting at 14 months. It's actually able to be detected at 12 months, but that diagnosis becomes considerably more stable and reliable at 14 months. And because of this, I really believe that autism treatment needs to focus on utilizing both the science of learning as well as research on appropriate developmental learning stages. And it's interesting, too, because this research, and it's going to get a little <laughs> neuroscientific here, but, you know, research suggests that that lag between the first signs of autism and actually receiving that autism diagnosis can be such a huge missed opportunity because yeah. the connections between those neurons in the prefrontal and temporal cortex are basically the brain regions involved in that higher order social behavior actually doubles between birth and one to two years in age. Mm. So really outcomes for children with autism can be significantly improved if treatment occurs during that period of rapid brain growth and development. Um, so in other words, the sooner we can address issues related mm-hmm. to autism, the better the outcomes. And with and it offers this evidence-based approach that integrates ABA and developmental science just to more effectively treat. These young children with autism.
0: Well, that's great. I just was um, doing a podcast with somebody and they were getting their daughter diagnosed. And uh, the lady is a mental health therapist and her husband's a physician. And they went to their pediatrician and, you know, a pediatric neurologist. And they said, well, she does have signs, but we want to wait a year. Something really wild. She was very young. She was 18 months. And this lady was like, "Mm, I'm not going to wait, you know, because she understood the power of early intervention. So she said, you know, I'm going to come back to your office and I'm going to sit. I'm going to sit in your office from the time it opens until the time it closes because she didn't like that. Let's wait and see approach, which we say that a lot in speech therapy. Like why? Why are we going to do that? Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's so interesting, you know, from the first signs to the diagnosis, because I know in my area here in Cleveland, Ohio, oftentimes parents might be on, and I'm sure the same for a lot of places, on a wait list to get that comprehensive testing to get that diagnosis that then opens up. Uh, world of different types of services and supports. So that's really hard for parents. I know that at that age, they're, you know, wanting to get that support. So it's great that you are specializing in um, just that age group. So if NDBI is new to people, and I, you know, speech therapists listening and and BCBAs too, understand that early intervention is so very important, because you know, our brain is a sponge, and we're going to be able to learn so many things when we're young and early intervention. So what exactly does it consist of?
1: Yes. So and actually, too, one thing I did want to mention with the um, the diagnostics, too, is you're so right about the waitlist. And so we actually um, recruited and have uh, diagnostics on site at both locations as well, oh, just because crazy. we believe you know, so, so much in that early, you know, early detection, early intervention, Mm -hmm. that that's been really helpful in order to like get those diagnoses and like get started right into services. So that's great. Just wanted to mention that. (laughs) Um, But yes, I get this question a lot about what is NDBI? I've heard of it, but there are these other approaches that I've heard. Are they similar? Are they the same? And all, when I do say NDBI, there's, several treatment models that fall under that umbrella mm-hmm. that many people have heard of so the early start Denver model or esDM mm-hmm. incidental teaching project impact um, to to name a few but within the last you know five to eight years people that were using these interventions, came together and identified some common elements and then agreed upon this general framework. And really, the two core components of empirically validated NDBI programs are the use of principles from ABA Hmm. and the use of developmentally based assessment and intervention strategies to guide that goal development and individualize it to each child.
0: Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's great. You know, because I like the Early Start Denver model and I haven't, besides my own training, I have the book and I've done some presentations about how speech therapists should learn about it and utilize it. I had Dr. Uh, Megan Miller on. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work. Mm-hmm. She is yes, uh, BCBAD yes. as well. And she said that <laughs> some BCBAs uh, don't really like the Early Start Denver model because they don't think that it is you know, from the field of applied behavior analysis. So that is interesting. I'm sure that and that's just how our field is. People are argumentative, right? So there might be some people out there that might be purists that don't uh, like that. But I've always thought the Early Start Denver model was very helpful, even if you just get the book and especially how it incorporates parents. And that's just so important at that age. And it's not just about a table and a kid and a parent and running programs that it's communication happens during play. So I like that. Okay, so that's interesting. So those so what types of teaching strategies if somebody's listening, and they're Mm -hmm. thinking, Okay, I this sounds good. Yes, I like this, you know, uh, thinking about some of these developmental milestones, and then also thinking about ABA. So what would be some teaching strategies that would be used during a session where this is kind of the framework that you're using?
1: Yeah. So NDBI, just because it does use ABA, we still use that three-term contingency, right? So we're looking at how the environment impacts behavior within the antecedents, behavior and consequences. And a really, really, really important aspect of NDBI programs is the use of child-initiated teaching episodes. So following the child's lead and interests during teaching. So some of the things we do is, you know, if a child... Um, is playing in a room, if we're doing some in-home therapy, we could just kind of walk into their environment, see what they're playing with, and just join in the fun. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if we have them at the clinic, we'll set up the environment beforehand with multiple toys or activities that we know they enjoy interacting with, and that we can also use to get some of our teaching goals accomplished and kind of let them choose what toy or activity to engage with. And it's really important throughout because really good NDVI should look like really good play, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And throughout, we just have to really pay attention to that child's motivation, right? So if we set up an activity, um, they really seem into it. If we're racing cars down ramps and we're like, oh, great, I can get to all these teaching targets in here, but they start to lose interest or start getting bored. It's really important to pay attention to that and try to either mix up the activity, put some variation into it, or just try to introduce a different activity that might be more engaging. Um, And in addition to that, we also just try to arrange the environment Mm -hmm. with opportunities for them to use the language. So um, I know some people on your show have talked about communication temptations, and Mm -hmm. we're big on those here. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a whole bunch of different types of them that I, I won't get into. But the overall goal is to motivate that child to practice using language, right? Specifically using their language to express their wants and needs. So like I mentioned, we might have things that are in sight, but out of reach, whether that's, you know, preferred toys up on shelves or in containers that the children can't open. So it really encourages them to not only interact with the adult, but also use their language skills to request help or for the adult to um, to open a container or provide access to a preferred item. But That's one right. thing, too, okay. I know I hear a lot is, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it, you're just following the child. And yes, right. although NDBI is child led, yeah. we do use what we call shared control, okay. or balancing turns, right? Mm-hmm. So we are doing turn taking, we're having you know, we're building in some back and forth exchanges mm-hmm. in activities or with objects. So if we're playing Candyland, we're working mm-hmm. on your turn versus my turn. Or right. if we're playing with cars, maybe the child gets to drive the garbage truck to the dump, dump the trash, and then the adult gets a turn to do that same thing.
0: Yeah, I think that's what people really struggle with is, and I was actually just taping a podcast right before this, we were talking about... Watching a therapy session and just watching the child run around the room and the therapist not having, you know, instructional control or that rapport with the student. And I always think therapy is definitely a science but it's it's an art form as well and i've been doing it 20 years so i feel like looking back on some of my sessions before thinking oh my goodness what was i doing here i think we have so much Absolutely. more information <laughs> we have so much more information now but i do think that people really do struggle with you know cuz i know i have one student right now that he doesn't like to play cars. Like a year ago, he didn't want to play with cars. He would just hold a little car in his hand. So he's been increasing his ability to engage in shared tasks and join attention. And I build rapport with him. So now I can run the car over the coffee table and then he picks up and he puts it on the rice track. But I think it's really hard for people and they struggle because those all sound great. But in theory, when a student doesn't respond or doesn't want to take a turn or doesn't want you to touch their stuff, then it gets really really difficult to know how to navigate those types of environments and those types of therapeutic situations. So I know that you're probably training staff on this different framework. And I'm just wondering, you know, how do you train them? How do you do you go through these different scenarios? Because, you know, in a real world, people aren't going to be able to respond and to have that shared control all the time and sometimes you plan this great activity and the student doesn't like it at all you know so so how Absolutely. do you how do you train clinicians on this framework and also how do you train them on these scenarios where maybe things aren't going as as planned in their sessions
1: yeah that's a great question and it's shaping Right. So it's really, you know, I, I think the first thing that we really reiterate to staff, whether that's an initial training or ongoing, is flexibility. Right. So that's really where if you're feeling some of that resistance, like step back, reevaluate kind of where the child's at, what they're into, and then kind of slowly reintegrate yourself um, before you start even, yeah, trying to ask them questions within play or whatever you're teaching mm-hmm. target. Is but um, during our new hire training, we spend a lot of time going through NDBI training and really just play training, mm-hmm. knowing because we forget all the teaching procedures, forget you know, DTT or discrete trial instruction. Let's focus on how to play with children and with some children that might not have that language where you could say, What do you want to play with? Right? How do you just kind of evaluate and interact with children? Um, and see what they're motivated to to be interacting with. So we go through that in onboarding training. We start didactically by going through all the different you know things you can do during play. All the different communication temptations. We do a lot of modeling. Mm-hmm. Um, we show videos. We do in session observations of. Kids that are on um, very heavy NDBI programs, we do a lot of role play where, you know, we said like, we're going to get goofy, we're going to get silly, we're going to do a lot of this in training where we have them play hmm. um, and give them feedback throughout. Now, our BCBAs get a little bit more training on, um, we have an NDBI assessment that we created to go along with, you know, our behavioral assessments like the VB MAP. So mm-hmm. we give them a little bit more training on using that assessment, how to write goals specifically, mm-hmm. and how to support the BTs. That's a big part of training our BCBs as well, just knowing that some staff struggle more than others with being able to play and, you know, mm-hmm. um, go out. It's a lot easier to sit at a table and do discrete mm-hmm. trial instruction. I think all of us would agree, right, mm-hmm. where it's it's kind of a paradigm shift to like, don't think about the teaching targets. Start with just thinking about playing and engaging with this child and building that rapport. And then, oh, here's a good opportunity where, you know, I can work on, oh, let's do patty cake. Where are your fingers? Where are your toes? Uh What do we play with? Where you can start incorporating some of those teaching programs that you're working on.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I I did a talk for a group of BCBA's. There was about three hundred people live for another um, company, and I was talking about joint attention. And so I was talking about using books and songs and toys to work on a variety of different goals. And it was really interesting the really specific questions that <laughs> the BCBA's had just about data collection and how do we collect data on these things? Because I do think that It's, you know, it is a higher level of of therapy planning because you do have to be flexible. And I always say I'm a play partner, not a play director. And you're right. There is this idea of ABA where we're at the table and it's we're working, we're working, we're working, you get a reinforcement. We're working, we're working, we're working, we get a reinforcement. That's what people think ABA is. We know ABA is different, right? ABA can look like us just playing with a child. but. I think that it's great that you're prioritizing this type of atmosphere and learning for your students. And it is harder to train somebody. I remember I was doing some mentorship for a uh, SLP BCBA who was offering ABA in their clinic. And they told a registered behavioral technician, just you know, play with the kid, just kind of get to know them, build rapport, and that really confused the staff because you're right. Like Before I had kids, it would have been hard for me to just have all that unstructured time. But now as a parent, I'm like, oh, well, there's so many things we could do. I guess for me, that's my journey. It's more comfortable. But I do think it's great that you're training specifically on how to play and what that means because it may seem silly to some people listening, but... That can be hard for some people. Some people might feel more comfortable sitting at the table, doing discrete trial. And this is a whole other type of skill set that still falls under ABA, but is completely different. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And
1: something that we've tried to and the BCBAs have really made an effort to, you know, minimize the number of targets that are in Mm. acquisition so that, Mm -hmm. you know, the BT can kind of just become familiar with, you know, the the targets that are in place. And then as they're playing, you know, just kind of quickly take data um, as they go along or even take data on paper kind of throughout play and then enter it into um, our electronic data collection um, after their session. That was
0: going to be my one of my questions. Do you use an electronic data collection system? You do. I do. Okay. Okay.
1: Yep we
0: do. Okay, cuz a lot of it, that that definitely varies. I mean, I have the luxury of seeing a couple clients privately, so I have my own data sheets, but it is paper and pencil. So, but I do work with some ABA providers and it seems like everybody is doing the online data collection, which makes a lot of sense if it just makes sense for scheduling and billing and insurance and all the things. So, but that does get tricky, right, on how to keep data. But that was another thing that was interesting when I did this talk on joint attention, how many questions people had about data. I think Sometimes it's hard mm. for BCBAs to, to measure what we're measuring during something like NDBI. Or if you're working on joint attention, You know, they yes. were very hung up. As a speech therapist, I try to talk about it as shared activities. So if I'm working yes. on a book and I'm doing Pete the Cat and the first time I introduce it, we do it for 30 seconds and the child leaves the teaching area. And then I continue to present it because they kind of like it. And now they can read the whole story. So for me, that's growth and I can show that. I'm not taking insurance so I get it's totally different but the BCBAs were very hung up on do you make a goal for eye contact how do you take data on you know whether the student is engaged and so is the data collection different and the goal setting is probably just different for using this approach
1: Yeah I think you know the the BCBAs still appreciate their their therapists taking that that travel try data and we mm-hmm. do do ioa checks just to make sure that they are able to do it and do do it reliably but then also we encourage the bcbas to probe a lot too That's where you know it's we want the focus for the therapist to be on the actual teaching and practicing these mm-hmm. things right so if one of the targets is you know two or three word mans like Maybe they're just keeping like they're doing like a frequency count, right, that we can turn to rate. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the BCBA is really going in there to probe and really see like, hey, given all this practice that's been happening, I like to see the trial by trial data because I can see within session trends um, of kind of what's happening. But really, I want to go in there. And probe it to see um, not only for generalization, but um but for maintenance too of are they
0: able to do this um given all
1: this teaching, yes or no, and then adjust from there.
0: Well, that's great. That's wonderful. And I know that you're you have other disciplines working at KGH. So are the speech yes. therapists or OTs, are they also trained in this approach and how do they work collaboratively with the behavioral therapist? What does that look like? Are the speech therapists setting different goals? I know for insurance, it's like all different. So I'm sure they have probably have different goals from an insurance uh, perspective, but how are they kind of working together in this type of approach?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I will say even before, you know, we bring new um, SLPs or OTs onto our team, we definitely explore that quite a bit during the interview process, just explaining our approach. Like we're very naturalistic. We're very play based. Mm -hmm. Um, Does that jive or not with your approach (laughs) to therapy? So we we try even from the beginning just to make sure that that our other disciplines do take more of a play based developmental Mm -hmm. approach. And they do go through the same NDBI training as in play training as all of our clinicians upon onboarding. And yes, they do develop their own treatment plans, but there's a heavy focus on interdisciplinary collaboration. So this is actually at KGH been a really big focus this last year as we've really been growing our speech and OT and mental health departments across locations and we've started doing a couple, a couple different things. And the first that we've gotten really great feedback on is we have weekly all we call it consultant. It includes mm-hmm. our BCBA, our SLP, our OT, our all of our mental health mm-hmm. clinician uh, meetings. Every Wednesday morning, everybody comes together, meets for an hour. Oh. A couple of the different things that happen during these meetings are. We do client case presentations where Mm -hmm. all the treating clinicians will discuss their goals and programming with a specific client and maybe Mm -hmm. even troubleshoot if there's, you know, been some Mm -hmm. barriers that are happening during treatment. We also have what I something I really love participating in ethics discussions Mm -hmm. during which all the disciplines will bring their corresponding ethical codes and Mm -hmm. will discuss (laughs) real life ethical dilemmas Mm -hmm. that may be happening. Um, and then we also do professional development trainings and presentations mm-hmm. as well. well awesome. Something else that is newer to KGH that's been really well received has been having weekly office hours for our SLPs, OTs, and mental health clinicians. The, you know, they're treating. It's right. it's um, It's different than a BCBA that can be more flexible with their time. But some of the feedback we were hearing is that it was really hard to find you know, mutual time to meet like a stay mm-hmm. and an SLP just due to SLPs right. being in session. So right. we've carved out in their schedule these weekly office hours that just mm. gives them an opportunity to discuss client cases and, and collaborate. And they do in terms of treatment planning, they have formal collaboration meetings um, every six months, which is insurance. You know, they yeah. want an updated treatment plan every six right. months. So we have more formal meetings at that point where they discuss progress goals just to make sure that everything is cohesive mm-hmm. and that we're working together um, versus having opposing goals or that might be competing with each other. And something else, too, the last thing I'll mention is um, we've been sending out quarterly Interprofessional collaboration surveys Hmm. that the staff is able to rate their satisfaction with interdisciplinary collaboration at KGH and really report what's working, what's not, and what can we do to be better. And that's actually where a lot of the feedback came from (laughs) that informed some of those changes and things that we put in place were from this survey. So it's been really interesting to start. Giving that quarterly, we just started this year, mm-hmm. but I think that'll be helpful moving forward just to kind of fine tune that interdisciplinary collaboration at KGH.
0: That's amazing. And I I love the idea of the client presentations, because I feel like that's such a good way to wrap your brain around all the different pieces and parts of the client's programming, but also good for your staff to get experience with presenting too, because I think that's such a big part of our field, right? Is (laughs) is disseminating information, whether it's on a podcast or your local ABA conference or, or your speech therapy conference. So I think that that is great. Well, so many amazing things that... You are are working on, and I, I love that you came on today to share them. Where can people find out more about you and um, your work? Yeah,
1: so I would definitely direct people to our website. It's just KGHautismServices.com. Um, it goes through our all the services we offer, our treatment approach, our treatment model. Learn more about our leadership team here at KGH and all the things that we're, that we're working on. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It was great to see you. Thank you so much, Rose. It was so much fun. Thank you for having me again.
0: Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.